Um, if you're new to our community this morning, or you're just jumping in on this conversation, we have been, um, you missed all the weird stuff. Uh, <laughs> so if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, that's what we've been studying really the last uh, 11 weeks. This is week 12, and we finish next week. Um, but what I wanted to do today is we're kind of towards the good stuff, so to speak. Um, actually, I didn't take the offering. Or was, it, was I supposed to do that? I was supposed to do that. We're going to take our offering. So um, we'll let that pass and, and uh, jump in if you can. Um, but if, if, you, if you're new, you've missed uh, some of the weird stuff, and we're not going to do a whole back uh, recap on it. But what I want to do today is start at the beginning of the story of Scripture really quick to set up the end. And um, I think this, this is just really important for us to jump back see what's going on, see where the trajectory is headed, and then we'll land at the end, okay? So Genesis 1, uh, verse 1, starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some of you are like, well, this is a real big recap. Um, <laughs> but in the Jewish mind, um, heavens... Uh, the idea of heavens and the earth, um, they didn't have a, a, a globe in mind. They just understood very much ancient Near East culture, very much just understood the earth, what's down here, what's up there. So in the beginning, God created what's up there and what's down here. Very simple. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In ancient Near East culture, deep water, the sea, was a, uh, a picture of chaos and disorder. Anybody out on a boat, some of you are scared of water, you're like, what is down there? It's very much an ancient Near East mindset of this is where chaos and disorder lives. And there's something about the Spirit of God in the, in the, in the conversation here hovering over all of that, like bringing something to it. We'll get into that down the road. Now the Lord God, now this is Genesis 2, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for, the, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 10 it says, and a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. And we'll hear about a river here shortly in the book of Revelation. And then verse 15, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So what was the man supposed to do or the human supposed to do here? They were supposed to what? Take care. Now, notice that there's work happening before like sin enters the world. So some of you are like, like, oh, I, I, the reason why I have to work is because of sin. No, we were working. We were, we were called to tend and take care of the earth before 
uh, brokenness entered the world. So Genesis 1, rule over the earth was supposed to be some of the agency of human beings, and then Genesis 2, work and take care of it. Both of these words, Hebrew, are words for worship. Both of these words are used to talk about our vocation as human beings to worship. It's a royal vocation. It's a priestly vocation. So we fast forward to the passage that Barrett read. And what we see is the prophets had a way of talking about this ultimate hope that would one day come and that God would do something, that God would actually start to tie off all the loose ends, all the things that we see and experience in this life, all the former things, that God would one day do something with all of that. And I'll reread it. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. So this whole conversation we've been having are about two different cities, Babylon, Jerusalem. Then you've got the beast and the dragon and, you know, the beast and the dragon and the, all that going on with Babylon. Then you've got New Jerusalem, you've got uh, the martyrs, and you've got all the things happening in these two different th- places that John is like, picturing for us all throughout. I mean, you can go back and listen. These are the images. These are the characters, right? And the big call for the people in these house churches, are we going to be New Jerusalem people or are we going to be Babylon people? And this is where the whole thing focuses in the last two chapters. And we're going to take this week and next week to finish the whole thing. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw, what? A new heaven and a new earth. John is recalling this vision of heaven and earth and, 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 and Genesis being created and then the prophets talking about a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, then I saw it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the word new here is really important. Okay. And this has a lot to do with where we go in our theology. But new in Greek can mean two different things. Neos is new in time, like brand new, entirely new, new. And then kainos is new in kind, meaning renewed. Okay, something brand new, totally new, out of nothing, and then there's new in kind. The word here is new in kind, meaning this has everything, this has a lot to do with where we go. Where did my, there's my nose. Um, And I used to think, here's the thing, I used to think that what was going to happen in the end was that God, if you read Revelation in a certain way, God is going to obliterate everything and start over. And that's not what's happening. God is going to renew everything. He's not going to wipe it all out and start over. God isn't making all new things. 
God is making all things new. Okay, that's a very critical distinction when we think about the future. All right? Now, if you have your Jewish ears on, you're thinking Isaiah. You're thinking Genesis. And then he continues, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no, long, no longer any sea. Now, some people get really upset about this because they think literally there's not going to be any more ocean. Like, God hates surfers. <laughs> but that's just, this is, remember, this is symbolic, saying there's no longer any more chaos or disorder. Where we're going, there will no longer be chaos and disorder. And it says there's so many Old Testament, remember, there's Old Testament callbacks and there's Roman propaganda. And John uses all these references to the Old Testament, and he draws on some of the pictures of Old Testament propaganda. Like last week when we talked about um, the Roman legion steadfast and, tr and, and true. Um, so those are the kind of things. Now today, there's just going to be tons of Old Testament callbacks. And this, what we're looking at is this entire kind of day of the Lord, kind of slain lamb image wrapped up okay, to put together, and God conquers through sacrifice, and His church, His people, actually conquer the same way. This is the revelation. This is the unveiling. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So, interesting, just a little bit before, we talked about Babylon. The writer talks about Babylon being like a prostitute, and Jerusalem is now called a great bride. And this is all imagery from Isaiah 61. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. Zechariah 2. They will be His people. Zechariah 8. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 11. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Isaiah 25. There will be no more death, Isaiah 25. is like the last enemy is death. Or mourning or crying or pain, Isaiah 25, 35, and 65. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This comes out of Daniel 2 and 8. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is interesting because at the beginning of the letter, we hear Alpha and Omega language, and now here at the end. It says, to the thirsty I will give water without cost. Isaiah 55, from the spring of the water of life, those who are victorious will inherit all of this. It will be, I will be their God and they will be my children. So this word victorious comes up again um, about conquering and overcoming. We have the Greek word Nike. From the spring of the water of life, oh, I already read that, verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, not just some of them, but all of them, <laughs> they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We talked about this a little bit last week. These people will, this, this group will not be allowed into the city, which is interesting um, how 
I thought everybody was in the lake of fire last week, but there's just a whole timeline thing going on here that we, we won't get into. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great, uh, to a mountain great and high. It's an image from Ezekiel. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It, it shone with the glory of God. This comes from Isaiah 60. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And the gates were written, on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Which is interesting, like it's like all this Old Testament stuff, it's like not, it like still means something, right? And there were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. This comes out of Ezekiel 48. And then the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure. This comes out of Ezekiel 40. The city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. Ezekiel 48. As long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, which is 1,500 miles in length and in width. Now, this is the crazy part. This is what some people believed the apex of the Roman Empire was. So this is a callback to like, hey, this, this, this is all going to get replaced. As wide, as high as it is long, the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick, which is 200 feet thick. The wall was made of jasper in the city of pure gold and as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated in every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise. Turquoise? What? Turquoise. The eleventh jacinth. The twelfth amethyst and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. Isaiah 54. The great city of uh, the, the great street of the city was of gold and as pure as transparent glass. So why all this gold and jewels talk? I'll just throw it out to you guys. Why do you guys think there's all this gold and jewels talk? Huh? Value? Yeah. Beauty, totally. Royal. We, royal, for sure. I think it's the author's way of, of communicating there's going to be no poverty. There's going to be no lack. That they're going to use this idea of precious stones being used as the foundation for a wall. It's just insane. I mean, think about you're this probably mostly poor house church living in, you can't, you can't do as much economically unless you kind of pinch the incense and kiss the altar and do all the things that are very worshipful. 
you're probably experiencing a bit of poverty. And, and so the idea here is there's wealth everywhere. There's no inflation. You're <laughs> generous with everything because there's no lack. And, it, and somewhat of an idea of like for us, and when you think about this, when you think about there will one day be, and some of you are experiencing lack right now and some of you maybe aren't, but the idea is that one day you will ha- not have any lack. How generous would you be if you knew that? So abundant, no pockets of poor people, no gated communities. See, this isn't necessarily a literal image. This is an image of the inverse of the empire they're living in. In the empire they're living in, uh, there's oppression and slavery and scarcity. There's a few people that are benefiting tremendously, and the rest are left to struggle. John's vision is there will be wealth and abundance and no scarcity. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So there's no need for priests or sacrifices or anything like that. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring splendor into it. Which is a totally fascinating line. I wish I could spend a lot of time on that, but I can't today. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Isaiah 60. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does not does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It comes out of Exodus, Isaiah, and Daniel. So, we have, um, we're seeing the transformation from the beginning of the scriptures from a garden to a city. We're seeing this transformation, and we had this conversation back when Gabe was here about Cain, and, and then Cain kills Abel, and then there's this idea about um, seven times, you know, and then, you know, he's, he's supposed to be avenged seven times if he's killed, and then, then there's Lamech, and then there's this whole idea of Babylon as this symbol of human rebellion. But now we see a city where salvation is the key, is the, is the main piece. It's no longer about uh, fighting and strife and violence. It's actually about salvation and healing. And then we get to the final chapter. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Remember that? Genesis 2, As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, that gold street, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, Genesis 2, bearing 12 crops of fruit, Ezekiel 47, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So I love that line. There's no healing of the nations. Remember, there was nations that were thrown into the pit, right? They were the beast. But there's nations that are healed, and there's this idea of reconciliation of all people. 
No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Back to this original human vocation. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am now the one who heard these and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. I don't know why I'm having a hard time with continue. I know. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into this city. Outside, outside the city are the docks. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. If anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, the God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city who are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, if you are a small, tiny house church, and you just sat through the reading of this whole scroll, which doesn't take long, actually, you're like, that felt long. And that was just two chapters. But I mean, if you sat down to read this, it wouldn't take you that long. And you just sat through the reading of this scroll and you heard all this imagery in one sitting and you're with 20 to 40 other people in your house church and and you're becoming increasingly marginalized and incredibly vulnerable because the worship of Caesar, the worship of Domitian is ratcheting up. We went through all of this a number of weeks ago. And you're either beginning to buy into or tempted to buy into the propaganda that Rome is eternal, 
that Rome is never going to be destroyed, that you need to kind of fuse your life and belief and practices with Roma. And this entire book, or, or, or you're going to be destroyed, or you're going to be on the wrong side if you keep doing this whole Jesus thing versus the Rome thing. And this entire book was written to give you hope that that is not at all the case. This entire book was written, this letter tells them that Rome is just another version of Babylon. And it tells them that Rome will be judged like all the Babylons before it. And by becoming a faithful dissident, you will inherit the counter city, that you will inherit New Jerusalem. And then instead of participating with Babylon, that you will now be like a bride dressed for her husband, and that's how the story ends. Now, I don't know about you, but all the images I had of heaven uh, growing up were, um, I'm floating, I have wings, I've learned the harp, <laughs> and, and we have different sized mansions, and it's like an eternal church service. A little windy out there. Bet you our sign blew down. What do you think, Troy? Yeah. Um, and you know, here's the, here's the, I'm okay with church services, um, obviously. Um, <laughs> and it does sound better than the lake of fire, but not a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, if I, it, it, for me, it was more about avoiding the other places than it was saying yes to a compelling vision of New Jerusalem. And what I love is that the author doesn't give us any of that. He, the author instead gives us this concrete fulfillment of all these little drippings of grace and promise that we've received throughout the whole story, not only the whole story of Revelation, but the whole story of Scripture. Like all these Old Testament callbacks are just these little just, he's the gathering up all these little glimpses, right, of what it's going to be like. And he puts them together in this beautiful picture Instead of being like disembodied souls floating around forever, the promise is that you and I are embodied souls in resurrected bodies living in a physically renewed world, new heaven and a new earth with God forever. And all these images are, are describing this foreverness life with God. And, it's, and, and all these images are like the best best picture that John uses is a, of a wedding banquet. Now, I've been to some bad weddings. I've officiated some bad weddings. I, and some of you are like, was that my wedding? Because I've officiated some of your weddings, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, but have you ever been to a wedding that did it right? Yeah, right? You know, you know which ones did it right. And, and it was so full of joy. 
and there was joy and excitement and there was celebration. And it's and really, if you strip away all the difficult stuff, it's one of the purest moments, I think, in human life that collectively, together, people, um, it's really when you feel like you genuinely celebrate uh, the union of two people coming together and the emotion of the family seeing their children united, the emotion around the promise of new life together. It's just all beautiful. Now, think of like the best wedding you've ever been to and the most beautiful part of all that, and then you subtract, subtract all the family dysfunction, okay? Uh, all the where's aunt so-and-so going to sit and will she be, you know, bummed out about it and the economic injustice or the economic tilt and maybe guilt or shame or fear or maybe all the feelings you have as someone who wishes you were married and you're at a wedding and you're always the bridesmaid and, you know, the whole thing. And you subtract all that stuff. You subtract the calories, right? Subtract the sadness and the mourning and I wish so-and-so were here. Subtract any sense of scarcity or jealousy. And that's the picture we're given. Like the greatest wedding with none of the other stuff. Is there something, maybe there's another way to put this. Is there something that you've experienced in your life where you lose all track of time? Like you just get so wrapped up into it that you lose all track of time. I mean, maybe that's what this whole thing turns out to be. Like one day we're just going to lose all track of time. There's no sun and moon. They say, oh, the sun's going down and we got to... We won't have a way to measure time anymore. We just exist in joy. I don't know, but to me, it's far more of a compelling image that is than, than harps. And so notice the direction of salvation. I always thought salvation was about getting us out of here, like an eject button. And up there. But the whole narrative of the Bible is about God coming down right here and invading right here and renewing right here. I mean, Genesis opens with God walking with humans in the garden in the cool of the day, whatever that means. And when there's this rupture between heaven and earth, and then through Scripture, we see that God shows up in a cloud, and here's God dwelling among His people with smoke and fire, and then there's God in a tent and called the tabernacle, and then there's God in the temple where He dwells, and then here's Jesus tabernacling among us, God among us, and then there's this Spirit now dwelling in us. And like the whole story is God moving to us, not us climbing our way out. And I just think that's a far more compelling story. And all the things that we hate about being human, right? All the former things, all the things that Isaiah said we will not remember, 
what philosophers call the unbearable weight of being. All those things we hate about being human, just being hard. Imagine being without all of that. The Bible just pictures these images like celebration and joy and abundance and shalom. And all the stuff we talked about last week, the city is incorruptible. And never again will there be evil done in the city. This is part one of the end. And it's something I hope that in the frantic pace of Advent, (laughs) in this Christmas season, guys, like two weeks left, someone's counting. Nice. Yeah. I want you to reflect on this stuff. Like you and I can keep our eyes, our eyes are always like kind of down here. You know, I got to do this, got to do that. My, literally, my head was looking at the ground all week, grinding floors. (laughs) But I think that we're meant to think Think differently and wrestle differently as faithful dissidents. And that's why we're going to come to the communion table. Now, one of the, before we get to communion, I, I want to just offer up an invitation. And the invitation is this. We've spent now 12 weeks talking about what it looks like to be a faithful dissident, what it looks like to be uh, someone who is, is, is pledged their allegiance to the slain lamb. And one of the things I think would be kind of cool to do is next Sunday, I would love it to see if anybody wanted to be baptized. I think what a cool way to finish our conversation out of Revelation here, to, to, to kind of make that public acknowledgement that I am pledging allegiance to the slain lamb. That I'm at this moment forward working out my, um, my new life in Christ with this people, this group of people, and we'll do some baptism next week. If you're interested in that, and we'll send out a link maybe on the newsletter or something like that, or, um, but this is just me. Uh, Mandy's thinking right now, like, what is he going to do? Like, just come talk to me. Come talk to Mandy. Come talk to any leadership person. We'll just get the word to us. And we'll figure it out. We'll do, we got, we got a way of doing it. We'll do it right here. We'll do it next week. So if you're interested in that, just let me know, okay? But this morning, we're going to come to the table. And we're going to come to the table, and, and what I want you to do is come to the table with the image of a wedding banquet, of abundance, of joy, of celebration, of the former things being stripped away. I want you to come to the table because this is a way for us not only to, yes, there's remembering, but God meets us in this moment. And so you're coming to the table with all that what the Isaiah calls the former things just woven into you right now. But you're coming to the table of the slain lamb. 
And the slain lamb, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. I, I, I came to be with you, to be among you, and to break myself, to overcome for you. And, I, and I've come not only to break my body, but to spill my blood. And this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. This is, this is how I'm doing it. This is how I'm breaking the, the, the pain and, and the sin and the, and the brokenness away from you. And so come and eat and drink and bring it into you. And may this be a moment of just beautiful grace right now in the midst of your life lived, experiencing all the former things. Let me pray. God, we are aware that we often lose sight that these images that we read about at the end of Revelation are big and hard to really imagine. You're trying to give us a picture of a, of a life, of an end of a world that is a beginning. That you're trying to give us hope just like that little first house church that heard this letter for the first time. That as Babylon is happening all around them and they are tempted to participate in it. And it just seems easier to just do what everybody else does. And that you have a better, more beautiful more victorious, more compelling picture of what life is all about. So we come to the table as your disciples. We come to the table bringing the weight that we experience as human beings. But you've given us a little taste a glimpse, a little shadow of a memory. And that's all we got to go on. So we come to the table ready to ingest you into our lives. joy. Amen.